If you would, just open up to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Uh, probably not a scripture that you go to on your weekly uh, scripture reading, whatever that may look like. But we're going to be looking at this entire chapter this morning. And we're looking at uh, the, the, what I'm kind of calling is keys to the restoring of, 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 of Jesus' church. Jesus made a comment, I actually just prayed it in Matthew chapter 16, on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus is, and Jesus alone, is the head of the church. He is the one with the design of the church. He is the one who leads the church. And so much in church, sadly, and I don't want to stand here as a judge of the church, I stand here as one who, by the grace of God, is calling out to God that I would uh, be aligned with him in anywhere where I've gone off alignment. But so much in church has gone off alignment uh, from what Jesus started 2,000 years ago. And I just want us to take stock as we're getting into what we're looking at this morning. Think of Jesus 2,000 years ago. Think about what you read of in the Gospels. Think of what it looked like to follow the earthly person of Jesus. Think of what it looked like when you read the book of Acts, if you've ever done that, and you look at what the church was like in the, in the, in the inception, that kind of holy origin of the church. What did it look like to be church? And compare that to what it looks like today. And I want to say it is burning in our heart that we would not just settle for church as usual in our generation, but in fact, we would have the boldness like we're going to look at in 2 Chronicles 30 of, of a king like Hezekiah who didn't just settle for the idolatry and the waywardness of the nation that had gone on for a whole generation, but he went back to what was originally the intent of God. And that, my friends, is what you and I are called to do, to go back to what Jesus started. And you say, well, I mean, yeah, but like everybody knows that's not what church is like. It's not really like what it was 2,000 years. It's not really like what it was like to follow Jesus. I want to say, yeah, the church in the end, the church that Jesus returns to, it really looks like what it did 2,000 years ago. That's the journey we're on. Well, I thought I was like on a journey about finding the right job and the right career and having a family and if you're following Jesus, all that stuff gets swallowed up in what he's doing. It all has its place. It's cool to get married, have kids and all that, have a career. But it's all in the grand scheme of on this rock, I will build my church. And so we want to look this morning at some kind of keys to what I believe, some keys, not all the keys, but some keys from, from this passage of scripture of, of restoring the church. And I just want to say, in, G in Jesus' time, what it meant actually to be a part of what he was doing, believing during that time in Jesus meant following Jesus wherever he went. It did not mean attending a Sunday service on a Sunday. Am I right? Following Jesus or being a part of what he was doing 2,000 years ago meant believers were like an interdependent family not a building. Jesus didn't even have a building. He didn't have a marquee. He didn't have a website. He was, he was God on earth, and to be a part of what he was doing meant being a part of a community depending on him and one another, following him wherever he goes on a daily basis. In Jesus' time, following Jesus meant growing 
and going, sent. I'm just saying some of us can get self-absorbed and I just want to grow and I want to get mature and I want to grow and I want to allow Jesus to break me through these strongholds and I, 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 all that's good, we need to grow, but it's in the context of a mission, right? Following Jesus 2,000 years ago meant living in realness and transparency and maybe not just wearing a, a church face. And, uh, and look, I'm, yeah, so keys to restoring the church that Jesus started, some keys, again, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but, I, but I'll just whip through them real quick. One is sharing Jesus with the world. Oh, I shudder at saying it that way, sharing Jesus, and, but like, I don't know how else to say it. Like somehow, the faith that is inside of you impacting and being communicated to a, to a people who don't know him yet. That's got to happen. That's number one. Number two, sharing meals with each other. We won't walk into the church that Jesus is building without sharing meals with one another. Number three, removing idols from our hearts. And I'll, we'll get into all this. It'll make more sense. Removing idols from our hearts. Man, like idol, like that sounds horrible. Well, it is. But maybe we don't worship uh, altars with gods of some other culture or whatever these days, but there are, there are nonetheless idols in our hearts to tear down. Number four, living in joyful praise. Thank you, Minda, for leading us in that this morning. That was so wonderful. Living in joyful praise. And number five, receiving God's word receiving it, receiving it, like planted into our hearts. So a little bit of background as we, before we look into 2 Chronicles 30. First of all, Judah, um, Judah was a kingdom that had been divided from the rest of the, the kingdom. So Israel became the northern kingdom, Judah became the southern kingdom. Hope I'm not, I'm not losing you already. Um, but God's people were once one nation and they divided, right? And there was a king of Israel and a king of Judah. That was never God's intention. It's just kind of what happened because of man's sin. And Judah had had good kings and bad kings, good kings, bad kings, and we had 16 years of a very bad king named Ahaz. And um, in fact, uh, I'll read to you. You don't need to look there now, but 2 Chronicles 28-22, I'll just read a few verses. Now, in the, this, is what, this, is, this is kind of the background leading up to 2 Chronicles 30. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him, saying, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him in all Israel. That was the condition of, Israel, of Judah at the time of 2 Chronicles 30. The evil king Ahaz had completely desecrated the temple, forsaken Jehovah, begun to worship the gods of Damascus, and 16 years went by where no one had even served the Lord in the land of God's own people. And so Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, is, is, comes up, and he becomes the next king, and in the first month of his reign, he immediately begins to make reforms to bring people, the, the people of God, back to what God had started. And you see in 2 Chronicles 29, 27, 
says, Then Hezekiah commanded them to offer the burnt offering on the, sac- on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets and with the instruments of David, king of Israel. And I just want to point out a couple things of what Hezekiah did there. One, he instituted the burnt offering. What is that? That is the sacrifices that God had prescribed in the scripture for people to be making in order to serve him. Do we make animal sacrifices in order to serve God anymore? Good. Um, that's, most of you knew that. That's good. If you are making animal sacrifices, let's stop that. We don't have to do that anymore. But there's a point here. The making of animal sacrifice, in this case burnt offerings, was a sign of their, their trust and their focus and their dependence upon the Lord. Taking what is theirs and offering it to him as a sign that you are my provider, you are my source, you are my God. No longer the gods of Damascus, Jehovah. You following and then the songs of praise, reinstituting actual sung worship, just like we just did. He reinstituted that as well. Both of these things, making a, driving a stake in the ground amongst the people of God to say, our focus and our attention is back on the Lord. That's the key. That, and if we don't do anything else in the restoration of the church, let that be the case. That anywhere where our attention, our focus, our dependence is on anything other than Jesus... Let's bring it back to that place. But then in 2 Chron- Chronicles 30, where I said, let's, let's begin, <clears throat> um, we, be, we begin to see some of these keys unfolding. I just want to say, I believe, just like in that passage of Scripture I just read, 2 Chronicles 29, where Hezekiah, first, the very first thing that he did was he set the priesthood in order. He told them to begin or reinstitute offerings And then he had the Levites set in order who were called to play stringed instruments to lead praise and worship, essentially. These are the first two things that he institutes. Now, I want to just say what I believe. In fact, I believe it strongly that during this COVID season that uh, I'm not saying we're out of it. In fact, my brother-in-law has COVID. It's just whatever. But we're meeting again largely without masks and all that kind of stuff. We're, there's a sense of normalcy, right? Shudder to say it, but something kind of like a normalcy. But there was 22 months for Border City Church and for most other churches where we kind of like were taken away. All the stuff of church was taken away. We were meeting in an apartment. We were meeting online. We were meeting in a shed or some kind of a, what was that thing in Troy? A warehouse. We met in a warehouse. We met in... We, we were bouncing around, but, we, but all the stuff of church was kind of stripped away from us, and we had to get back to the core essentials. Can I ask, by raise of hand, how many of you were, walked with Border City Church as part of that journey? So, about half of us. During that time, there was a bringing together of DNA of we kind of walked a journey together of all the stuff being stripped away and we were reduced essentially to prayer and the word of God and and community praying trusting in the promises of God getting back to the core elements right in the same way Hezekiah first started with the core elements sacrifice and worship But then, once he has those things in place, there's a priesthood, there's sacrifices being made, the temple has been cleansed, they can begin to worship and serve God. We see the first thing that he does 
which is for us sharing Jesus with the world. If you look at me in verse 1, it says, And Hezekiah sent to all Israel. I want you to take note of that. All Israel and Judah. Hezekiah is the king of Judah. And yet he's sending a message to all Israel and Judah. Well, he doesn't have any authority over Israel. All Israel and Judah, and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel. What was Hezekiah doing? He is saying, though we are two kingdoms, though we are divided, God did not institute this division. You are God's people just like we are God's people, and we're all called to, to come back to the city of God, Jerusalem, to worship him as he has prescribed. And rather than just building his own thing, he begin in, in, in the, his own people's thing, he reaches out to the rest of God's sheep. What does that mean for the people of God, you and me today? That means there are people outside of this that don't yet know God who are called by God to walk with him. Who, whose God's love sent Jesus to a cross to pay the penalty for their sins that they could know him and be a part of this thing that Jesus is doing in the earth today and they will never become a part of it until you and I go. And this is what Hezekiah was restoring first. After he gets the core set in place, the next thing we've got to do is we, we, we need to reach out. And so once, the, yeah, so once the core is set, we reach out to those who have wandered. I just want to say Jesus' heart has never, it never will stop until Jesus returns. It will never stop being outward from the church. And so much of what we know as church is just coming to a church thing to attend and to kind of be fed and all, that, and all that's good. But if it doesn't translate into you and me going out from this place and impacting the world for Jesus, it's actually not doing what it's supposed to do. The church is the only organization that exists for something other than itself in the earth. And uh, I remember clearly when, when years ago in, in just such a simple way with, with the Lord, in fact, I was in college. I, I mentioned college way too often, but it, God did a lot in my heart during those years. And I remember, I remember the simple truth just impregnating my heart and, 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 and changing my whole vision of everything. And I saw these kids on the campus, and, I, and, I, and, it, and it was like the Lord just spoke into my heart. You once did not know me, and now you know me. And I want every single one of those kids on this campus who are lost to know me. And it, and it put inside of me a heart, a desire to do whatever it would take to have the faith and the experience of Jesus that I had found to become their reality. You follow what I'm saying? This is the reason that Jesus came into the earth. is because he wanted, he looked upon the earth and in the same way he saw all the people of the earth and knew they've got to know my father. I'm willing to do whatever it takes that they would know my father. That is eternal life. And it's that heartbeat that must re be restored in the church, that we live to see the lost come home. It is the mandate of the church. He gave this as the ending conclusion of the last kind of sentiment he shared with, the, with his disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the ends of the age. Go. And you cannot fulfill God's call without going. We, yeah. So I want to ask us a question. Ask, in fact, I want to ask us all to ask ourselves a question. What am I doing intentionally and regularly to share Jesus? Who is in your life and what can you be doing? I want to suggest for a lot of us, pretty simply, it can be to invite somebody to church. It can be to invite somebody to a meal. It can be to invite somebody to our house. Me to invite somebody for a coffee. It can ultimately, in one way, shape, or form, invite somebody to a sports game, by the way. Invite somebody bowling. I'm starting to feel the Michigan flow going on here. Let's go bowling. Let's go to a Lions game. Watch the Lions lose and share Jesus on the way. <laughs> Tigers won. I'd rather take them to a Tigers game. Ultimately, it's to invite people into your life, into your space. Can I remind us that Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. He was accused of being a wine-bibber and a glutton, according to Luke chapter something. Do you follow what I'm saying? If Jesus was accused of of these things, is the church today accused of these things? And if we're not, why? Why are we not hanging out with people outside of the church? Why are we not doing something intentionally, taking every measure, any effort to make sure that I use my life to make sure other people come to know this Jesus that I've come to know? Can there be a more important use of our time on this earth? You tell me. And yet we spend so much of our energy and our mental focus and our physical energy on stuff that has to do with me and my household. And I want to say the church of Jesus needs to link arms with Jesus and become about them and not about me. And he will be about me as I'm about him and them. He'll take care of my stuff as I'm seeking to save the lost. And then if you'll look with me in verse 2. For the king and his leaders and all the assembly in Jerusalem had agreed to keep the Passover in the second month. Verse 3. For they could not keep it at the regular time because a sufficient number of priests had not consecrated themselves, nor had the people gathered together at Jerusalem. And the matter pleased the king and all the assembly. And it brings us to the second point. Restoring, the second key of restoring Jesus' church is sharing meals with each other. Sharing meals with each other. Sharing Jesus with the world, sharing meals with each other. If you look with me in verse 5. So they resolved to make a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba to Dan that they should come to keep the Passover. I want you to just take note of that. The Passover. Not just to come over and, and uh, hang out or to pray together or to make sacrifices specifically that they should come to keep the Passover to the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem since they had not done it for a long time in the prescribed manner. The Passover was two things. Firstly, the Passover very simply was a feast. And so Hezekiah in his priorities of what he wanted to do once he decided to restore true worship back to the people of God after it was reaching out to the rest of the, the, to the wanderers, 
it was to invite people specifically into sharing a meal, a feast. Jesus, what Jesus started 2,000 years ago was simply a community. Now, let me ask you, is it possible, was it, would it have been possible when Jesus was here physically to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus, but to follow him on your own and not be with the others who are also following him? Would it be possible? How many of you have met somebody who says, I, need, I, I love Jesus, I'm following Jesus, I just don't want the church? And I understand why they feel that way if I'm straight up. But you ever heard that? I, I've got my thing with Jesus, me and Jesus are good, uh, but I don't need to be in church. 2,000 years ago when Jesus was physically here, it was not possible to follow Jesus without being with the church. You couldn't be there because wherever he was, there was his disciples. If you're going to be a disciple, you had to be with them. And he was building a group, not just a series of individuals. Because you and I all fit together with different gifts and different callings. We need to be fitted together. And it's in the context of community. Do you know that Jesus' disciples, at some point, even if they were wearing their Sunday best when they started following him, at some point, their B.O. was smelled by the other people. At some point, one of them dropped a cuss word. At some, you've, uh, okay, now, now you're getting uncomfortable. <laughs> in fact, if truth be told, I might have heard some people in this room drop a cuss word. Anyway, yeah, no, that's, I was, I couldn't, surely that didn't happen. Anyways, <laughs> do you follow what I'm saying? Time together, where it's no longer the church face, it's reality. Why is it so important that we have a feast together? Because this thing is a community. It is not a meeting. It is not a building. It is not an organization. It is the family of God. That is what Jesus has always, always been building. Sharing meals and having fun was a central part of this restoration of this Passover peace. Passover peace? This <laughs> Passover feast. See, we're doing it right now. Why, why would that be so important, my friends? Because meals together bond. I don't understand it. I can't explain it. Something about sharing a meal creates a bond. And in fact, if you think of it in its most simple terms, the family unit should be sharing a meal on a regular basis with one another. And that's how we form our sense of identity and our sense of belonging and family. It's where we share our lives where we get input about our day from our mom and dad and from each other or give input. That's the meal. And the family of God are to have this exact same experience. Meals bond, they create intimacy, it helps us to share life, it helps us to create memories. And it's not even just meals, it's just time, it's doing stuff, it's going to see the lions lose and all those things. What, what, what would this look like for us? I want to say a, a, a bare minimum beginning is community group for us. Where in the Bible are you going to find community group? You're not going to find anything called community group, but you're going to see it all over the New Testament. The spirit of it. Sharing meals from house to house. Breaking bread. You see it all throughout the book of Acts, all throughout 1 Corinthians. You're, the sharing of meals is an obvious priority of Jesus' ministry and of the early church. It is a key, my friends, to the restoration of Jesus' true church. A key, I guarantee you. And I want to ask us, uh, to, to come back to that. It's a feast, but I said there's two things that the Passover is. It's a, one, a feast, but it's also a feast 
specifically that recalls our covenant identity. If you don't know, the, the Passover was the celebration annually that, Jesus, that God had prescribed to his people to remember that God had passed over them in the judging of the firstborn in Egypt when they were being delivered from slavery in Egypt and going into the wilderness towards their promised land. God, God the angel of the Lord, killed all the firstborn Egyptians, but every uh, is Israel, Israeli household, Israelite household, that had the blood on its doorpost, the angel of the Lord passed over and delivered God's people into their promised land. It's a, remem- it's a reminder that we are God's people. We have God's favor. God is with us. This is incredibly important. What, what, would, this, what would this kind of symbolize today for us? Communion. As in Eucharist, communion. That, the, the, the body and blood, the bread and wine, what we just did this morning, the covenant meal, the remembering of our identity in him. And we do that every single week uh, around a meal, just like it was instituted. Jesus instituted communion around the Last Supper. It was a supper, right? There was a conversation going on. It wasn't a church service. It was a, a meal being shared by Jesus and his closest friends. And that's the way it's supposed to be. So I want to ask us to ask something. Is eating together with my church community a priority in my schedule? I kind of hesitate to say that because if you just ask yourself that and the answer is no, you may feel condemned. Well, I gotta go eat with people. (laughs) It's obviously the thing that Jesus wants to force me to do. The, The issue is we have to see the why in order to do the what and actually to want to do the what. Why? Because I can't really fully grow other than in community. Why? Because part of what Jesus has for me will only be found in his church. Like as in not this version of church, community version of church. Why? Because I have a calling and a gifting inside of me that will only be expressed in community with the rest of the church. And I need to grow so that I can give. And I give in relationship. Why? Because there could be a prophetic utterance from somebody in the body of Christ that I need to, to hear, and I'm only going to hear it if I will actually be at that dinner table in that discussion. I, so many times I have been so encouraged by something that somebody wanted to share with me in, the, in a community group Had I not simply gotten in a car and drove to the community group and been there, I would have never been encouraged in that way. That's why. So that you can receive and that you can give. The body needs you and you need the body. That's why. So let's go on to verse 6. Then the runners went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the king and his leaders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children of Israel, this is the message that was sent to Israel. Children of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. And do not be like your fathers and your brothers who trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers so that he gave them up to desolation as you see. Now do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but, listen to this, yield yourselves to the Lord and enter his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever 
and serve the Lord your God. These are words that are calling people not just to some kind of this is what you ought to do. It's sharing heart of God towards the people that have wandered. That the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. A little, a little side note there, the wrath of God turns towards people when they turn away from God, and when we turn back to God, his wrath turns away from us. Verse 9, For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will be treated with compassion by those who lead them captive, so that they may come back to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn his face from you if you return to him. There is a, a calling out there that's giving people a, not just this is what you ought to do, it's giving you a vision of God's heart if you will return to him. And I just want to make the side note that as we go about wanting to share Jesus with the world, it's the same thing. It's not about just taking people through the four spiritual laws so that they can see their need for Jesus. It is helping people to see and to understand God's heart towards to them and what God wants to do with them if they will receive Jesus. It's not just about going to heaven when you die, although surely that's a big part of it. It's about being restored in an unbelievable relationship with the one and the only one who created you, right? Verse 10, so when the runners passed from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. We see two things there. One is that a whole bunch of people laughed at them and mocked them. I want to ask us, as we're seeking to, to share Jesus, are we going to stop when somebody rejects what we have to say? Are we going to stop when somebody doesn't really agree with us? What we see in that passage of scripture is that a whole bunch of people laughed at them and mocked them, but some from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and responded correctly. The point being, every time you get a rejection as you're reaching out to somebody, you're simply on the path, if you will keep going, to finding the one who will respond. And it's for that reason that you push through the rejection after rejection after rejection before you find somebody who's actually going to receive. Minda and I, when we first planted this church, started making a list of people that we had significantly poured into, making phone calls, pastoring, sharing a meal, having in our home, counseling, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we started making, we had over 100 names, none of whom were actually in the church. And we started to feel a little dismayed. I mean, we pour and pour and pour and pour and kind of no one wants to stick, right? But you know what? You keep on pouring and there are people who actually, you know, this is a little awkward because I don't want you to feel like we only want people to come to our church. You follow what I'm saying? But there is a going and you're wanting to see people who are going to respond to the message. You keep pouring and there are people who do respond and you keep going. You follow? Rejection just means I'm one step closer to somebody who's going to say yes to Jesus. And rejection is a part of what Jesus promised would be a part of the disciples' life. And he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Which moves us on to, uh, if you look at me in verse 12. 
Also, the hand of God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. Now, many people, a very great assembly, gathered at Jerusalem to keep the feast of unleavened bread in the second month, which leads us to the third thing, removing idols from our hearts. Look with me in verse 14. So they arose and they took away the altars that were in Jerusalem. They took away the altars. These are altars to false gods, altars in Jerusalem. And they took away all the incense altars and they cast them in the brook Kidron. So what is an idol, you might say? Because clearly, I don't know, I mean, some people uh, may have actual, you know, relics of some kind of a god in their house. Uh, Probably few in this room, but that that could happen. Most of us probably don't have a shrine to uh, some kind of a god in our house. Am I right? Okay, good. So... We'll start there. However, as is the case, most in the Old Testament is a physical portrayal of spiritual things of the heart that we have revealed in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And the physical idols that were set up in the Old Testament represent for most of us idols that are in our hearts. And they exist and are still, are still around and strong in the church. And so what is an idol? I'm going to say a couple thoughts of what I would say an idol is. It is anything that, number one, you fear instead of fearing God. An idol could be man's opinion. That is an idol. If we fear man's opinion over the, the fear of God, we will be limited in when, how much we will obey God. Once it gets to the point of men thinking something of us, we're no longer going to cross that line. That means we serve man's opinion and not God at some level in our lives. That's an idol that must be torn down. Anything that you fear instead of fearing God. An idol would be anything that would cause you to disobey God. For example, I might have a financial goal for my life. And when the Lord wants to cause me to make a leap of faith of some sort, because it doesn't fit into my financial goal... I'm not even open to it. That means I serve my financial goal over the voice of the Lord to my heart. That's an idol. Or it could be, I'm just giving you some examples. An idol would be anything that you have affection for over God. I remember I had a friend and uh, uh, back in, in the college days, and he got married, and... Uh, and it was kind of obvious that the Lord was moving on his family. There was God, God was just doing stuff in a lot of people's lives. And, uh, and it was kind of obvious that God was calling a lot of us to stay in this particular city, even though none of us, the city where our college was, even though none of us had really planned that to be our long-term plan. And uh, God was doing something, and he could tell. And it, like you could tell, he was like halfway saying, man, I want to be a part of this. But you know what the issue was? He grew up on the coast of South Carolina and he was in a boating uh, culture. Low country boil. You guys know anything about that? It's a whole culture, if you don't know. That's what you do on the weekends. You, you make sure you own a boat, a speed boat. It's important. And you go out and you go fishing. And when he was being called to be a part of the city that was three hours away from the coast or whatever it was, he was stumbling over it. Now, I remember he was hemming and hawing, and I, just, I, just, I don't know if I can do it, man. I, no, I, well, maybe we could, like, live there, and we could just come up here on weekend, you know, and he was trying to do this thing. He had affection for this thing. 
It's not bad. It's not evil. But it was exalting itself in his heart above what God wanted to do. This stuff happens all the time in our lives. And, and every single week, every single month, we're probably being faced with some kind of a thing where we can decide to yield to God or yield to our, our own affections. So we, we, we pray and sing, we want, we want the Lord, we want him to have his way. This is where the rubber meets the road. I don't think I'm going to get through all this today, I don't know. It could be, an idol would be anything that you have affection for over God. An idol would be anything that you trust in instead of God. It could be our job. You know, you lose your job, or it could be the money that's in your savings account or your checking account or whatever. It could be whatever. Things that you are have in place that you feel dependent upon when they're taken away from you. I mean, it's, it's fine to have a wobble, but we need to live in a place where we're not dependent upon anything except for the Lord. Anything else that we're dependent upon it would, be, would become an idol. And so I want to ask ye, all of us this morning to ask ourselves a question. What idols might be in my life? Is there any place that I fear something rather than fearing God? Is there any place that I, would, uh, that I have a thing that would cause me to be willing to disobey him? Or that I have affection for something o- over my affection for God or I trust in instead of God? What, that might, might, what might that be in my life? Let's go to verse 15. And then they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the second month. And the priests and the Levites were ashamed and sanctified themselves. And they brought burnt offerings to the Lord, the house of the Lord our God. I was just want you to take note of that. The priests and the Levites were ashamed. Why? Because they hadn't been sanctified. They hadn't gone through the kind of ritual preparation to stand in their office. So as this restoration was happening, they found themselves not prepared for the moment. Some of us are a part, even being in, in the church, are a part of God restoring some things in this moment restoring us back to our original place. And as we become a part of that, we realize there, there are some things that are not in place in our lives where we're kind of not keeping in step. And I just want to point out what they did. They brought the burnt offerings to the Lord. And then in verse 16, it says, they stood in their place according to their custom, according to the law of Moses, the man of God. The priest sprinkled the blood and received from the hand of the Levites. I just want to point out, it's okay if we find ourselves, as God's restoring some things, if we find ourselves not quite ready, not quite in our place, where we see we need to make some shifts in our lives, but we need to make a determination that we are going to be in place as we see these things. Verse 17, For there were many in the assembly who had not sanctified themselves, Therefore the Levites had charge of the slaughter of the Passover lambs for everyone who was not clean to sanctify them to the Lord. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, and yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord God provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God. Uh, the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. What is that? That's people wanting to do and be a part of what God's doing, but they're doing it the wrong way because they just kind of don't know. And Hezekiah here, the king, is praying that, that, that God would have mercy on them and kind of overlook their ignorance. 
And how many of you have ever tried to kind of be a part of what God's doing and you kind of do it in ignorance, right? Right? Kind of do it wrong or whatever. I want to say that as God is restoring some things in the church, there's grace towards us. It's more important that we try to get involved and try to throw ourselves into it than saying, well, I'm not ready. I don't know how to do this. I'm not perfect. I haven't finished my theological degree yet. No, no, no. It is stepping out in faith now, even if you do it wrong. God would rather you go than sit and wait until you're good enough to go because you're never going to be. (laughs) You'll never move. You just got to go with all of your weaknesses and all of your problems. You just go and throw yourself into it. So, which brings us to the fourth thing, living in joyful praise. Verse 21. So the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with great gladness. With great gladness. This is not insignificant. That this is part of what was happening. And as, as God is restoring his church, you and I are called to do it with great gladness. It is amazing to be a part of what God is doing. It is exciting. God is good. It is, we, even if circumstances don't say that God is good, he is good. And, and in fact, you really see how good he is when you are in bad circumstances and you see his salvation in the midst of it. I mean, what I loved, uh, Rodney over here. I mean, Rodney all but led us in worship this morning, praising the Lord. And he's, his wife has been in the hospital this week. You may notice that he's got a neck break. He's got all reasons to be upset, right? Praising the Lord worshiping, serving, loving the Lord, heart full of faith. That is what, that's, that's the recipe for seeing the salvation of God in the midst of bad circumstances. Raising a hallelujah in the, in the, in the presence of my enemies. They did this, they did this with great gladness, this feast. Uh, with great gladness, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And I want to say to us, you don't have to turn there now. This was key to early church life. In Acts chapter 2, verse 46, I read this often. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Breaking bread is, means they did what together, by the way? They ate, right? Good. Breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness. That was the description of the early church. They didn't just eat food together. They did it with gladness. Why? The gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. How many of you want to see that? This is the the culture of of New Testament uh, following Jesus. So how do we walk in joy? I mean, how many of you know you can't feign joy? You can't just like... Try to be joyful. And I've seen a lot of Christians who try to do that. Put their, it's, another, it's a whole other church face that you put on. You're ticked off and you walk into the church building. and Oh, praise the Lord. God is good, sister. No. We're not ta- God has not called us to fakeness. And fakeness is never going to win the world. Joy. How do we walk in joy? One thing is actually believing. Actually believing, actually engaging your faith. Just give you a quick example. Uh, there was a time in ministry for me. There was somebody who uh, was, I was walking through some difficult circumstances. And on top of that, 
There's a key family uh, in the life of the church that I was leading, and all of a sudden I found out that there's the, the husband and father, they got like issues, and there's accusations being made towards me, and it's a whole bunch of stuff, and I've got to deal with this. And I, and, and I don't, if, if you've, maybe you've never been in these situations, but you know you have to go and have a conversation, you've got to confront this stuff, and you just don't want to do that. I'm the type that doesn't like confrontation, by the way. Some of, some of you run towards it. <laughs> They're like, what, what's the problem? That sounds great. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. And I, but, but there was also some spiritual stuff involved. There was some demonic spiritual stuff. There was this a familiar feeling of feeling oppressed. I felt, I felt, I just, I knew there were words being spoken against me. There was all that junk, that fuzz in the air. And, and I just went into my room and I just began to, to pray. I began to pray in the spirit. I began to sing to the Lord. I began to put my affection on him. I just began to re- realize this is the simple truth. I may not know how to deal with this situation, but I know that I know that I know God does. And because I know he's with me and he loves me, uh, I can rejoice even if I don't know what I'm going to do. And I just began to rejoice in that. And in that moment, I just, it's like the veil from my heart. I began, my eyes were open. I began to f- see exactly what was going on. I knew how God wanted me to approach this situation. And I walked out of that room free. I had all sorts of circumstances against me. And I had this problem that I still had to confront. But I was free from it. Glad. You follow what I'm saying? How can you walk in, 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 in joy? Actually believe. Engage your faith in the middle of the storm. And you pull up a joy that, that is inside of you. It's not fake. I'm not trying to put the joy face on. I'm pulling up the joy that's inside of me and allowing that to be the thing that begins to conquer all the circumstances and thoughts that are going through my head. How do we walk in joy? Yeah, I'm not going to go take a lot of time, but I would say choose the kingdom, the dominion of Jesus. Jesus the word of God says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Uh although it includes eating and drinking. But righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That means that if I'm not walking in righteousness, it suggests that I have slipped out from under the kingdom, under the domain of Jesus. If I'm not walking in peace, there's, I'm not walking under the domain of Jesus. If I'm not walking in joy... Somewhere along the line, I am not walking under the domain of Jesus because his kingdom is righteousness, peace, and joy. And so it's like a dashboard light. Uh, you guys ever ignored a dashboard light? Maybe put your hand on the, on the thing and like prayed in Jesus' name, go away. No, you actually got to take your car into the shop and then it goes away when you, anyways. I, I'm actually, I've, seen, I've heard people praying over their car. and uh, Anyways, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> if you have to, right. Dashboard lights are there to serve us. And if we're seeing something that's unrighteous, a lack of peace, a lack of joy, somewhere it suggests we're not connecting with the king and under his domain. Joy is also a fruit of the spirit, which suggests if we're connecting relationally with God through his spirit, not living according to our flesh and our natural understanding, but, but connecting in a deep communion way with his spirit, the fruit is joy. Anyways, yeah, don't want to go there. You don't have to work on the fruits of the Spirit in your life, by the way. just want to point that out. Oh, I really need to work on patience and joy. You, you, don't, you don't do that. You don't have patience and joy. The Spirit of God inside of you does. 
you really need to work on not looking at the, what you see with your physical eyes, but rather connecting with God in the spirit. And when you do that, there's going to be a joy that is unspeakable and full of glory and is beyond a peace that passes your understanding. And so, I, let, guys, all that to say, let's celebrate as a lifestyle in our personal lives and corporately. I love what we did this morning. It was celebratory. Raise a hallelujah. This is amazing grace. Um, let's do that regularly. Why? Because this is not just like Christian rah-rah. This is real, the kingdom of God. We have something to celebrate. And it doesn't matter how bad things may look. Not that they look bad right now. I'm just saying it, if they do, it doesn't matter. There is always something real to celebrate, and he is good. He is good. I stand as witness. He is good. He, you can trust him. You can celebrate at any given moment, my friends, and find joy that passes understanding. So I want to ask us, am I choosing praise? Am I tapping into joy despite circumstances? Am I choosing that? There is a turning of the heart that, that needs to happen. It's not, God's not going to sovereignly come upon you and place praise on you. You, you turn your heart and recall in the midst of that storm, I know who my Savior is, and I'm going to celebrate. Dance if you need to. And lastly, receiving God's word. Receiving God's word. That's a powerful word, receiving. Verse uh, 22, And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites who taught the good knowledge of the Lord. So here they are, they're celebrating the Passover for the first time in years. They've never done this. They're kind of rusty. They don't even know how to do it. And the Levites are apparently supposed to be teaching God's word. The people of God have not heard God's word in at least 16 years. Are you following this? And uh, it says they ate throughout the feast seven days, offering peace offerings and making confession to the Lord God of their fathers. I just want you to think of this that they were hearing God's word for the first time in, in perhaps as many as 16 years. They did not know it. The word of God, what God had always wanted his people to walk in, was for the first time being orated in the hearing of God's people. And you know what happens? They begin to realize, oh, snap. Uh, that's not the way I'm living. That's why it says they heard the word of God and were making confession. That making confession is the evidence of actually receiving God's word the way it's supposed to be received. If there's not a confession that, I, God, I see this, I see you've, you've called me to this, and I'm doing this, I want to go your way. Without that, all we've done is heard the word, not received it. Confession proves that we've seen it. Confession feels like a four-letter word to some of us, it is a doorway into the extension of God's kingdom into our life. If we will admit this is your way and I am not walking in that, I choose your way. Confession, that is powerful, my friends. If there's anything that needs to happen in the church, perhaps it's that. And so they were, they were absorbed by it, they confessed. And I want to say that this follows suit with what we hear of in the early church when the word of God actually describes the culture of the first church in Acts chapter 2 what were they giving themselves what were they prioritizing Acts chapter 2 verse 42 and they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine. Number one, breaking of bread. Number two, which is meals. Uh, fellowship, thank you. Spending time together and prayer. They continued, is this not consistent with everything that we're saying here? What, what does the church hold on to as far as our rhythms, our culture, what we do together? Apostles' doctrine, what is that? The preaching and teaching of the word of, the word of God. It's the word of God, fellowship, a breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. This is why community group is so important. Not because we have a little program called community group on Thursday night. It is to create a facility to allow what God has intended for his church to be to ha actually happen. And it says, we're almost done, as you can see. Then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days, and they kept it another seven days with gladness. There's that word again. And Hezekiah, the king of Judah, gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep, and the leaders gave to the assembly a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. The whole assembly of Judah rejoiced, also the priests and Levites, all the assembly that came from Israel, the sojourners who came from the land of Israel and those who dwelt in Judah. And so there was, listen to this, great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. I want to say of you and me, let's this, let this be said of us, that there would be great rejoicing in Rosedale Park, in Detroit, because there has been nothing since days long gone by that something like this has actually happened. Let us be a people who are not building border city church. We are allowing Jesus to build his church, to extend his kingdom as a light to people who don't know him and see his goodness, that there would be something of heaven on earth through the church and, and that would speak to the longing of the heart of every person that exists on the planet who longs for community, who longs to be connected with God, who longs for spiritual fellowship. And it says, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place up into heaven. My, my friends, God is restoring his church. Jesus is restoring his church to be what it looked like, to, to be the church globally, across the world, what it looked like in his day and what it looked like in the, in the scriptural mandate of the New Testament. That there would be Jesus seen, Jesus would dwell on the earth through his people. Can I ask us to, uh, if you would, just close your eyes. I want to I give us opportunity right here, right now, to do the very thing that they did. They made confession. They made confession as they heard the word of the Lord.